Inside of You is brought to you by Nutrafol. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster growing hair with less shedding. And look, hair thinning impacts a lot of us, myself included. In fact, over half of us will experience hair thinning at some point in our lives. It's not only common, it's normal. Join over 1 million people who are doing something about it with Nutrafol. Nutrafol helps support hair growth from within by targeting possible key root causes of thinning, stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, lifestyle, and even metabolism. Does the craziness of everyday life leave you stressed and shedding? Since having kids, have you started seeing a little more of your scalp? Has menopause impacted your hormones and your hairline? When it comes to thinning hair, there are many possible root causes at play, and Nutrafol helps address them through a multi-targeted, whole body approach. While many supplements rely solely on ingredient studies, Nutrafol clinically tests final formulations to ensure their efficacy. In Nutrafol's own clinical studies, 72% of men saw more scalp coverage after taking Nutrafol men's hair growth supplement for six months, and 86% of women saw improved hair growth after taking Nutrafol women's hair growth supplement for six months. While many supplements rely solely on ingredient studies, Nutrafol clinically tests final formulations to ensure their efficacy. In Nutrafol's own clinical study, 72% of men saw more scalp coverage after taking Nutrafol men's hair growth supplement for six months, and 86% of women saw improved hair growth after taking Nutrafol women's hair growth supplements for six months. Take their hair wellness quiz at Nutrafol.com for a personalized hair health plan based on your specific possible root causes. With Nutrafol, getting help building a hair growth routine is simple. Purchase online, no prescription or doctor's visits required. Free shipping and automated deliveries ensure you'll never miss a day. You could see results in three to six months. Take the first step to help you see visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter promo code INSIDE. Find out why 4,500 professionals and stylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L, Dot com promo code inside that's nutrafol.com promo code inside inside of you is brought to you by neurohacker qualia synaletic i just sent some of this to my mother and she's starting to notice the differences mm-hmm. in herself and, she, and because i noticed my mother was always had brain fog and and she couldn't think clearly and and you know and and i i was like well this stuff works for me and what's great is I didn't even, they weren't even a sponsor when I started using this. Um, have you heard of Synaletics yet? Well, listen, it's a class of ingredients discovered less than 10 years ago, and they're being called one of the biggest discoveries of our time for helping to promote healthy aging and helping to enhance your physical prime. Your life goals in your career and beyond require productivity. But let's be honest, the aging process is not our friend when it comes to endless energy and productivity. That's why I use Qualia Senolytic. As we age, everyone accumulates senescent cells in their body. Senescent cells may cause symptoms of aging, such as aches and discomfort, slow workout recoveries, hello, sluggish mental and physical energy, hello, associated with that middle age feeling, hello. Also known as zombie cells, they are old and worn out and not serving a useful function for our health anymore but they could be taking up space and nutrients from our healthy cells. Much like pruning the yellowing and dead leaves off a plant, Qualia Synaletic 
helps remove those worn out senescent cells to allow for the rest of them to thrive in the body. And you just take it two days a month. That's it. The formula is non-GMO, vegan, gluten-free, and the ingredients are meant to complement one another, factoring in the combined effect of all ingredients together. And they must believe in their product because they have a 100-day money-back guarantee. It's pretty amazing. I felt higher energies. Uh, I feel uh, more focused. Um, Younger. I have to say, because a lot of these things make me feel younger. I feel more uh, productivity happening in my life, a little more enthusiastic. Help resist aging at the cellular level. Try Qualia Senolytic. Go to neurohacker.com slash inside for up to $100 off and use code inside at checkout for an additional 15% off. That's neurohacker.com slash inside for an extra 15% off your purchase. Thanks to Neurohacker for sponsoring today's episode. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The products and statements are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You're listening to Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum. It is Supernatural Week. I just want to throw a few things at you. In love with Michael Rosenbaum, Chris Sullivan is also an iTunes subscribe, write a review. Chris Sullivan and I really appreciate you. October 18th, I'll be signing with Tom Welling. Uh, In Columbus, Madison, Wisconsin on the 25th, November 8th in Austin, Germany, my band Left on Laurel will be playing. Our album's out, man. You can pre-order it right now on iTunes. Go to the iTunes store and pre-order the album. If not, on the 4th, which is this Friday, it's coming out on all platforms. And uh, merch, you can find it on Inside You store and all that. We're really excited. And at the end of this episode, I'm going to play a song. Yesterday, we played a song after the Mark Shepard one, but today we're going to play one after this lovely guest. We're going to play the second track on the Left on Laurel debut album, Saved by the Ground. Right now, Misha Collins, boy, is this guy handsome. He is just a handsome son of a bee. He's 45, too. I look at him, I'm like, why can't I look like that at 47? I guess because I'm 47. But uh, we really get into it. He's very open. I mean, he oh, he seems like a shy person. He is shy, but he's... Uh, He's really sweet and fun. He's been on everything. I mean, the guy was on Charmed, NYPD Blue. He's been on CSI uh, Crime and in- Scene Investigation. What else? I mean, e- he's in a lot of these procedurals and then landed Supernatural. And uh, I think that really changed his life. And he loves you fans. So listen to him talk about that. Let's get inside Misha Collins. It's my point of view. You're listening to Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum. Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum was not recorded in front of a live studio audience. Are, are you hearing me now? Yeah, perfectly. Okay. You actually sound really clear. There's no echo. You look good. That's good lighting. I've been working on sounding good Have through you? the computer microphone. Do you do uh, vocal warm-ups before your uh, Skype calls? Yeah, but only for about 45 minutes. <laughs> well, dude, good to see you. This is, uh, this is pretty exciting, Misha. I, I, you know, I've been wanting to get you... On the podcast for a while now. Making the mistake for a while of trying to do it in person and, and our paths weren't crossing um, frequently enough. So, so this is a wise choice. This is a wise choice. It's just very difficult for me to get up to Vancouver, but more so for you to leave Vancouver. It's true because of my contract that forbids me from leaving Vancouver. <laughs> is that true? Is that a, was it a 10 year contract? It's a 10-year contract, and they have a low jack on me, and if I cross the border, uh, explode and, and sever my foot. So, <laughs> How many interviews do you do a year, do you think? 
uh, I think we do a lot fewer interviews um, in the last five or six years than previously. Um, when the show was newer, when Supernatural was um, still something that people were excited about, um, we were doing quite a few interviews. But then it was like, well, this show has been around forever and nothing has changed. And the guys that are on the show are quite old now and not interesting. <laughs> they stopped you're a liar. And now what we have that's kind of exciting <laughs> is the end of the show. And so everyone is like, oh, finally, it's over. Let's talk to them about that. <laughs> um, so I think that this year is going to be a year of a lot of interviews. Yeah. And probably this will be the last time anyone wants to talk to us. So we'll, um, I'm sure, really soak this up. You really, your dry sense of humor, it actually... I was thinking, oh my God, he really believes this for a second. He's really, a really, he's he's, a he really feels like he's washed up. And I'm like, he's crazy. Do you ever go to these conventions? Rob, have you ever been? Rob's here. Rob Hollis, my uh, my uh, engineer slash producer. Rob, say hi. Hello. He's never seen Supernatural. If I crane my head off to my left. <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't I, help at all. I still can't see you. It's not like looking That's through Rob. a window. That's Rob. Let's not get too comfortable looking at Rob, though. I just <laughs> wanted you to see him. My wife watched Supernatural. <laughs> Well, it is. Would you say uh, it's mostly women who watch the show? Do you have, I mean, the, if you had a percentage? No, I don't think so. I think um, I think it's mostly women who are super fans of the show, but it's a pretty good uh, demographic mix of people who watch the show. So that that's actually yeah, they're they're two really separate demographics: the people who just watch the show and the people who love the show. For some reason, it, it, it's a show that appeals, um, you know, to really enthusiastic female fan, fans. But we get tons of guys who are like, uh, you know, our entire barracks in the Marines uh, watches Supernatural every week. Um, so it's not it's not a, a, a one gender show. But women who are unsatisfied in the bedroom often watch our show like <laughs> awesome. they're unsatisfied in the bedroom that's why so. she's she stopped watching oh, just, oh, yeah <laughs> she very, watch in good. A while. very good rob good one-liner uh misha like look obviously me i said misha like look you noticed that did you hear that it wasn't great english i still haven't woken up yeah. Well, I have a Misha like look. So Misha like look. <laughs> you do have a Misha like look. I didn't want to talk uh, obviously all about supernatural because that's not what the show is. The show's not like you know we're going to do a supernatural week, which would be great because you know you're all loved. But you know, I find your story fascinating. By the way, where do we meet? Didn't we meet playing music together, or you were playing music and I got on stage? Wasn't it at one of those events? Where was it? Well, maybe I was on stage briefly, but you're friends with Rob Benedict, right? Yes, Rob Benedict, Jensen, Jared. I mean, I was, you know, Jensen was obviously on Smallville years ago, and that's how we became friends. I think it was a night that you were there when Rob was, uh, Rob and his band were up on stage, and I popped up on stage briefly. It, we had a, a brief but very exhilarating encounter. Right. It was. I liked you. Now I think you're thinking about somebody else. No, 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 it was you. I was like, that guy's really cool. He's really handsome. And by the way, I hear from so many people how great you are to work with. And not only that, but you're like incredibly philanthropic along with being a good actor and all this other crap. But I mean, that's what I noticed mostly is like, I'm like, wow, he does so much for the world, so much for people. Is it, am I right there? Yeah, that's me. Um, I'm blushing right now, so I feel uncomfortable. <laughs> so thank you for that. I guess that, you know, one of the good thing, I, I, I think that I always wanted to, when I grew up, um, be a net positive on the world. 
And I thought for a long time that I was going to go into politics. Yeah, you worked in the Clinton administration or not Clinton administration? What? Yeah, I was a, I was an intern for Bill Clinton. Um, and I don't know that uh, that I did much work, but I was there. That's good. You were there. Yeah. And um, but but I, I in fact, actually, that experience um, kind of disillusioned me with politics. I I thought, oh, maybe this isn't the right path for me to take. What to... was it? What was it about that? Uh, there were a couple of factors that went into it. You know, I was in the White House and I guess I had imagined that being in the White House, you were going to be in this space where the best and the brightest minds in America <laughs> and frankly, the world were all <laughs> under one roof. I mean, yeah. now, now we can very clearly laugh at that concept, <laughs> but I think at the time there were probably a lot of people who thought that. And then when I got there, I, I discovered, oh, it's actually kind of, it's a lot of, um, it actually made sense. There were a lot of yaysayers, a lot of people who were just going to toe the line and like whatever the president wanted, the president got. Right. And it was a team that was there to support him. But what that meant was there's a lot of people who had volunteered on the campaign countless hours. They got positions in the White House or people whose parents donated a lot of money to the campaign. They got positions uh, in the White House. I'm not talking about like cabinet level positions, but there are, you know, thousands of people that work below that that are presidential appointees. And uh, and it was just like kind of a lot of nepotism and and, uh, and not the brightest people in the world and not the most uh, engaging place. And I was like, I don't want to deal with this. But you could have made a difference. You, you were seeing it from the inside or maybe that's what you thought. You thought I actually can't make a difference. It's almost impossible to make a difference in here. Well, I guess I thought I, at the time I thought, well, you know what, I'll start, you know, working for politicians and I'll find a way to work my way up and, you know, learn the ropes. And then I decided I would um, uh, my 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 plan B was, all right, maybe I'll just get famous enough that I can make a difference that way. I gave myself five years and five years later, I like could barely get a guest spot on Charmed. But you got it. I, 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 but I got it. And then I sort of gave up on politics. And then ironically, um, Trump came along and it just re it rekindled something in me. And I felt like, all right, maybe I will, you know, dive back into that world in a bigger way. I don't I don't not no, I don't know that I'll ever run for office, but I want to be, you know, much more politically active. Well, you I and Jensen. Been. Yeah, you, Jensen and Jared, you the three of you uh, really supported Beto. You're not a Trump supporter. That's what not what you meant. <laughs> oh no, no, no! I'm sorry if I misled you. No, I love Trump. <laughs> we don't get political here, but I, I'm very interested. I was very interested in 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 how that all happened, and like, so you, yeah. you you sort of are inspired now to actually make a difference. You're going back on what you th- had thought years ago, and you know what? I'm going to do whatever I can now with whatever little power I have or whatever power, and try to make a difference. Mm-hmm. I like that. Now you you grew up poor. That's true. Yeah, because, you know, I always, when I read about that, like, poor as in homeless at times? Uh, yeah, homeless at times um, and on welfare at times and on food stamps for a long time and, um, you know, raised by a single mom uh, for the most part. I visited my dad. He was, you know, he was a satellite in, in our childhood. Meaning he just, he wasn't around. He just kind of buzzed, came in and out. We saw him like once, you know, a weekend, two weekends a month kind of thing. But it, but he wasn't, you know, really a, a presence in our in my up, upbringing. Um, but my, um, you know, my childhood was 
it was interesting because on the one hand, it was full of adventure and, you know, living in tents and learning that uh, you don't need money to feel happy or loved. Um, but at the same time, there was a lot of struggle and a lot of difficulty because of that and a lot of, you know, not fitting in and a lot of, uh, I guess, embarrassment about being really um, poor. How old are you at this point? Well, my parents split up when I was three and we were living in pretty impoverished circumstances starting when I was five, I would say. Yeah. And we moved schools, you know, more often than once a year, which actually made it really hard because I never had a peer group and I was always sort of the new kid and the weird kid. So I learned some like coping skills but it was also challenging, and I probably have some emotional scar tissue from the experience. Well, I want to get into the scar tissue, but when you say homeless, I mean, you know, I'm thinking, you know, living under a bridge in a tent. Is it? Are you talking shelters? Are you talking a little bit of all of that? No, I mean, we only went to a shelter when we were living in a tent and a hurricane came. But we were living in tents um, here and there, and we were living in subsidized housing uh, that was pretty... Um, pretty bad in a cabin that had an outhouse for a little while and uh, and a windowless office space that didn't have a shower or a kitchen for a while. So it was like sort of patchwork. But, you know, I mean, as a kid, kids are, you know, incredibly resilient and can uh, can deal with a lot of things. And, and luckily I had a, you know, my mom was incredibly present and incredibly loving. We just were super poor. But now that I have kids, I see, oh, wow, that must have been harder on me than I thought. Mm, yeah. I, I honestly just can't imagine. I keep thinking about this little boy, you know, living in a tent. And I, I think, I mean, do you think back, like, can you remember anything specifically when you go back and you, you know, I don't know if you've done any psychotherapy, but I'm about to dive into that shit soon. But I'm thinking, do you think of anything that you you thought maybe as a five-year-old, six-year-old, whatever, little boy going wow, this, I hope it gets better than this. Like, this is like, I'm scared. Do you remember feeling scared? Do you remember feeling who are these people or any encounters with other people who are you know, dangerous or seeing anything that you kind of like blocked out that remember now? That's a really interesting question. Um, I'll, I'm going to take a step back and just, and, and say that for the longest time, all the way, probably until my mid to late twenties, I painted my childhood really heroically, like, all of the things that I experienced as a kid, hitchhiking, literally, you know, your grandparents say, you know, well, I was a kid, I used to walk, you know, 10 miles through snow to, to school. And I, I used to like walk, you know, when I was seven years old, I would walk two miles through the woods on a little, little path with my uh, four and a half year old brother in tow, you know, by ourselves in the snow. And yeah, I, I felt like that built character and, ma you know, made me stronger and made me not afraid of the world. And my mother had this incredible irreverence. She really was always about like bucking convention and um, not having us um, not having us cow to cultural norms. And I really painted that heroically. And then later, it was like maybe my late 20s, early 30s, I started to reassess it and realize that some of those things were difficult. Like we, we would, you know, at times not have a car and we would hitchhike and there would be, you know, men who would try to, you know, pay my mother for sex. And do you remember that? Yeah. And I, and I remember like times, you know, feeling, you know, my mom would buck conventions, but for example, one of them was 
she sort of cut she cut my hair to look like a girl. I had short bangs and and long flowing hair, and she painted my uh, my fingernails and my toes with nail polish and sent me off at four years old to Cub Scouts in a very rough, very working class town where I was really abused by my peers. Why did why did she do that? You know, I think that she was like, you know, boys should be able to dress like girls. And I mean, now, now in this modern moment, it's, it's so much more culturally acceptable and it's so much easier to do something like that. But at the time, like I was really eviscerated by my peers and it was really hard and it wasn't something, it wasn't something that I was choosing for myself. It was something that she was choosing for me. And that was hard. And there were these little sort of alienating moments throughout my uh, childhood that were challenging. And, you know, at the same time, in some way, they built characters. It was, it was a two-sided coin, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, this I, really is therapy. I'm going <laughs> to cry. No, I mean, believe it or not, the, you know, the, the fan base or the listeners that, that listen in, they, this is what the, you know, it's, it's not that we, like, we want to get dirt. And it's, that's not what it is. For me, it's like, it's more about your journey, Misha. And it's more about, I look at this amazing human being who I admire and would I'd change places with you. I'm working on myself and trying to be a better person. And I, and I look at like, Hey, you just haven't always been this strong, solid guy. Who's always, you know, faced adversity. And, and, you know, I, I feel like knowing this, I want to see the character and how, how you survive. Because like, I remember, you know, my mother, certain things like, you know, she helped me dress up. It was her idea to, for me to dress up like Pat Benatar in a very conservative town to get extra credit for a class. And I sang Shadows of the Night and she put breasts and lipstick and all this stuff on me. And I remember an entire classroom looked at me like, you're, you're, who the fuck is this? And I remember looking at them and this buzzing feeling got over me. Like, I guess that was anxiety then. And it was like, oh my gosh, you are failing right now. You are failing. And, um... I just remember leaving the room in full drag thinking, oh, my God, I thought that was going to be so funny and I was going to be embraced. Um, but, you know, I had a say in that. I said, I, I, yeah, this is going to be funny. And my mom helped me. She didn't force me to dress like a woman or a girl. So what I'm saying is when I hear that, does that make you years later? Did you suddenly say, why did you did you ever say, mom, why would you do that when I didn't ask for it? Uh, I don't know that I've ever confronted her on it. And, and, and it's a funny thing because uh, – I, you know, I think that we should live in a world where that isn't a painful experience for a kid. Like, I, I think that this should be a place where you can dress however you want. You can present however you want. You can, you know, have you, you can love whoever you want. You can be whoever you want and not be ridiculed for it. And if somebody does ridicule you, fuck them. However, um, I agree with you, by the way, that wasn't the case. And it was difficult, and um, and I think that there were um, there were moments when sh sort of her philosophical framework was preempting my developmental needs. <laughs> I guess I have you know had conversations with her about that. You know, another one that was really challenging for me was she really wanted me and my younger brother to be politically aware and connected to the importance of justice and and peace i guess but one of the casualties of that was that she was talking about nuclear war all the time and like taking us to nuclear holocaust films 
at a young age. And I had like terrible nightmares about that for the longest time. So as I'm starting to parent, I'm trying to strike a balance where trying to make my kids aware politically, but not traumatize them. We have a big homeless population a few blocks from our house. And I always try to make the kids walk with me, you know, on the sidewalk where everybody is camped out um, so that they develop the sense that these are just people. And that actually, they're often very friendly people who they can feel like are part of their community and not an alien other. But at the same time, I'm also really being careful not to show them um, movies where everyone is um, burned into fiery ash. Sure. Were you, were you, did you tell them like, Hey, daddy was homeless. Yeah. Although I don't know if that's really settled in uh, with them yet. And that's gotta be kind of like, how old are they? Uh, six and eight. So it's hard to sort of comprehend, right? Cause obviously you live such a, you know, the lifestyle that's so different from that. Now that's, it's just crazy. It's crazy to hear, you know, the story in it. It is. It, it, I agree with you 100%. I, know how, I don't know how anyone can't agree with you. When was it where you finally were able to move into an apartment, move into a house? Things started to get better. You saw a light at the end of the tunnel. When was it that you said, okay, hey, this is – because it, it seems like even incrementally, like every – you were so far down in terms of homelessness and all these things. And you know your dad and the relationship with them. And all of a sudden now you're – you can only look up at this point, right? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess I guess I was I, I never I was never really thinking of our situation as terribly dire and I think that maybe that was because I was, you know, growing up in a relatively poor town where there were a lot of other kids who were in struggling situations. I I was I do remember being, you know, a little bit embarrassed about having other kids, you know, come over to our windowless office or, you know, I never brought friends home to the tent. Um I think that my not feeling like I fit in made me work extra hard so that I could, you know, impress my teachers or find some sort of a touchstone where I was like, well, I'm good at this. So you can't criticize me for this. And so, you know, I did well in school from a young age and, uh, you know, went to a good high school and went to a good college. And I kind of I carved out a little avenue for myself to be successful at, I guess, so that I could feel good about myself. I also worked hard. Um, and maybe that was, I think, you know, looking back, I think that that was some sort of compensation too. Yeah. And you say, you say your mom was, was loving. Did, was she always wanted to say, I love you and you're going to be something big and I support you whenever you do. And there was always that feeling of I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. I could do whatever there is I want to do. And, and you think that also helped you really get through it? Cause if she wasn't not having your father there as present, it's really up to your mother. And if she wasn't there, who knows where you'd be right now? Yeah, no, my mom, I mean, that was like a real gift that my mother gave me. She really, she believed in me. Uh, she never really questioned what I was doing. She was always supportive. You know, like if you go into the field of acting, it could be really challenging if you're coming from a family that thinks that you're making a foolish decision. When you when you decided to become an entertainer, did 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 you did you have support? Mm, not really. I think my mother was, she's pretty eccentric and she was just kind of like, yeah, whatever. I did theater, uh -huh. but like, she didn't really care. Um, my father was definitely like, you know, he worked in a pharmaceutical company. He's very bright, like 1420 in his SATs when the 1600 was the, the highest. And I wasn't, I wasn't anything like him, which I felt like, you know, I could not get his approval because I was so different. So yeah, I remember being at Denny's after a play and I'm like, I'm going to be an actor. And he's like, eat your steak. 
and that was it. you know that was sort of it and he just never and it wasn't until you know it just took a long time before he ever sort of i think it was like it was actually smallville that he probably said i don't think he ever said hey you're really good i never heard that but i think it was like hey um i need some pictures to give to my employees uh, that and I felt like, oh <laughs> wow, he wants some pictures of me. That to yeah. me was the most I was gonna get. It wasn't like, I you're you're so goddamn good. You're the best Lex right. ever. I never heard any of that shit. But you know, um, that's high praise though. That's it was high like praise. for me, yeah. So yeah, I didn't get that that um, sort of approval. I you know I always think I always talk about this you know ad nauseum that you know ch- for children, especially in their developmental stages, and your your proofs in the pudding. I mean, you know, for some kid who was living in a tent and homeless to make it to where you have, it says a lot about your mom. It says a lot about the love and support you got. And, you know, it shows, and, and your strength. Now, I'm not going to give her the, all of it, but like, you know, you had this inner strength that you said, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to fight this and I'm going to, I'm going to be the best that I can. Yeah. It's, I think it was definitely both, but I, 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 I think that it's really important for a parent to just sort of shower their children in unconditional love and support and say, I believe, you know, I trust you to, to make the right choices. And I mean, you know, that's not, you can't paint with too broad a brush on that because at some points you have to sort of carefully redirect your children. But, um, but that support was really, really helpful. I, it's you know it's it would be just like swimming upstream if you're fighting against parents who don't want you to you know pursue that kind of thing right and many people go through that i mean it's a dumb question i always ask this question this is not the first time i'm asking but do you get anxiety do you get depression do you get like uh i can't do this i have fear in the way or do you are you someone who because i know you like do crazy meditation you go on retreats every year do you still do the retreats 10 days a year for yourself uh, since my children were born, I have not been doing uh, a 10 day retreat every year, but I just got back from one last week and it was great. <laughs> I was like, oh, I missed this so much. So what happens on uh, these retreats? I mean, in a nutshell, um, I, it's always something different, but you spend 10 days in silence. You spend, well, 13... well, well, hang on. You can't just do that. Cause you're talking to someone who can't be silent for 10 seconds. Well, I think anyone, I think anyone can actually do it. I think that the silence is the easy part. It's the sitting on a cushion and meditating 13 hours a day that is crazy making. Um, and you go through a lot. Um, you really, you go on a, on a psychic and, um, spiritual journey that's very challenging at times. Um, but I invariably when, uh, come out the other side just feeling like I've had major epiphanies and uh, feeling much more grounded and happy and present. So I think it's a really useful tool for me. I don't know where I'd be without it. It helps, frankly, mitigate depression and anxiety quite a bit. Um, I I haven't suffered terribly um, in my life from anxiety. I'll have moments of anxiety or, you know, sometimes at night when something's really bothering me, I can sort of loop on something or ruminate too much uh, while I'm lying in bed. But anxiety is not crippling for me at all. Um, And I go through this thing that I call molting once every few years, which is, frankly, I think any mental health professional would call it depression. Um, But I just you know, go through a period of feeling quite depressed. And it's often not connected with 
any story. It's not like it's just situational. Well, I would say, or it's just internal. Like maybe it's a, some sort of a cyclical chemical process. I, because it is cyclical and because it's, it usually lasts like two or three weeks for me. Um, I have called it molting, like shedding something, um, because it feels like I just kind of want to curl up in bed and, uh, not talk to anybody and not do anything for a couple of weeks. But when I say it's not connected to a story, it's not like, well, this thing happened in my life that precipitated this feeling. Or if I had gotten that gig, things would be great, but I didn't. So now I'm morose. Instead, it's just, I just feel shitty. So you welcome it as this is part of your physiological, biological. I try to, and, I, and when it comes, I try not to fight it. I try to just let it be. But it's a challenging phase, and and it's I'm in in some ways grateful that I've had these periods because it allows me to have a little bit of empathy for people who struggle with depression chronically, because when I'm in that you know state, I feel like I am dysfunctional, like I really couldn't do anything if I wanted to, and I can't imagine that being a chronic state. I imagine just now, like your wife walking in just now going, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> talking publicly about this. You're embarrassing me. Again. Why are you getting so deep? They don't, don't they want to know about episode 340? What are oh, you doing, dude? Great episode. Hey, <laughs> hey, by the way, look, I really appreciate you talking about this. Um, I don't know. It just means a lot. By the way, have you ever, I just watched this documentary. Have you ever tried ayahuasca or LSD or anything? Um, when I, I, it's been a very long time since I did hallucinogenics, ayahuasca, you know, when I was in high school, I, I had, you know, a, a, a phase of experimentation and I did some, I did acid. I don't know when it was long time ago. I know a lot of people who've done ayahuasca and not really ever fully come back. So that really, yeah. So it's dangerous if you're if you OD so so to speak. Well, it's, I don't know that it's an OD thing. It's just people sort of you know they come back from a you know a ten day trip in Peru and uh, never in Peru. The same. <laughs> and I I don't know. I, yeah. So anyway, that one that one scares me. Um, I don't. I'm not eager to do ayahuasca. Well, I was watching a, a documentary last night called Becoming Cary Grant. Uh huh. And Cary Grant who's, you know, one of the great actors and, and movie stars of our time or of all time or of another time of yeah. another time of all time actually. But he talked about how he sort of like, I guess, childhood trauma and this and that. And he went on to say that he through an ex-girlfriend or ex-wife, actually, he experimented in LSD and then went to the psychiatrist who he would be, you know, he put on a eye mask and he would just trip balls on LSD and he'd sit there and he'd be like curled up in a ball going, Ugh. Oh God. Oh my God. And, and like, uh, he would go on these trips that just opened his mind so much that it changed his attitude towards life. His, his he felt more alive. He felt more humane. He, his relationships with people were better and he swears, swears by it that LSD did this. Because if not, he was not living this happy life that everybody thought he was living. He couldn't get close in his relationships. He didn't feel like he could love. He didn't feel, and he he swears. I, I you know, we watched this last night. And we were thinking, Cary Grant, Cary Grant. You look at these beautiful, you know, people, and the, the, how could they be so down? And so my my point was, you know, did you find any uh, 
anything that was freeing about it that opened your eyes to other things that kind of made you look at the world in a different way? Uh, I've definitely had, um, I've, I've definitely had drug experiences that have precipitated epiphany. I, I read this book last year called Stealing Fire, and it's sort of about this burgeoning movement of microdosing and um, biohacking and the the combination of, you know, occasional drug use and meditation and, you know, the right kind of intense exercise. Um, and it's a, like there's a, you know, whole I mean, they, they these people, the, the, the people that wrote the book Stealing Fire have. Uh, set up labs at, you know, Google campus for, you know, people to come in and, you know, experiment with these things. Not that they're microdosing people at a, as a matter of corporate force at Google, but I think, you know, all over Silicon Valley, that's a, that's a, um, a trend right now. And um, it is something that I think can expand your mind. It is also a field in which you have to be really careful because if you, you know, do too much or do it too often. Uh, it can totally derail your life. And maybe that's what I noticed with the people who I know who are doing ayahuasca. The ones that came back and never really seemed like themselves again were the ones that, you know, went a second and third and fourth time or were doing ayahuasca, you know, twice a month um, because they were trying to like chase that high or that feeling. So, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm 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 all for careful and guided experimentation. I did this. I just did this ketamine treatment. I haven't really talked about it, but uh, <laughs> there's this um, facility and uh, real doctors, they talk to you and see if you're even like a candidate, like, Hey, could this help you? And uh, the doctor's like, yeah, I think this can help you. And I was like, look, I don't trip. I've never tripped. I've never been a drug user. I mean, you know, I've been dealing with all this stuff and they're like, you know, I, I think you, you benefit. And then so I went to this clinic and they sit you in this chair and it's very calming. In fact, the people in the waiting room, I'm like, Hey man, have you done this before? Oh yeah. And I'm like, cool. Do you, uh, does it work? He's like, it's incredible. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, it's just really profoundly worked on um, on me. And then you look over to this girl who's just looking at a magazine. I'm like, you too? Oh, yeah. And I'm like, okay. So I feel comfortable. And I walk in because I'm freaking out because I'm not the guy who's like, if you hand, hand a piece of acid or what do you call it, a piece of acid, a hit of acid, a piece. Come on, man. Come on. Get, get your jargon. I've never done acid. but um, It's a tab. It's a tab of acid. A tab of acid. So I go into this this room and I sit in this chair and they pull me back, you know, in the chair and we're we're watching you, 100% monitoring you. We've got cameras on you, so we're not going to upload these to the internet or anything. Don't worry about that. And we're just going to make if you have any issues, you wave your hand. We're going to come in and we're going to make you feel comfortable. And here's some blankets and here's some headphones that the doctors sort of talked about the the music that's going to be on them, which is sort of uh, classical. And they go, hey, we're going to give you a little IV of Ativan to just calm you to make sure you're calm and a little uh, stuff for nausea. You sit back and... Um, Enjoy the show? That's sort of what he said. Enjoy the show. And so I closed my eyes and I put this little mask over me. I, of course, had all this. I was apprehensive. I was, you know, and I go, listen, whatever dose you normally give people, give me half of that because I honestly am a lightweight. So they did. And I did a couple sessions. And um, the first session, I, I could feel like... There's just they said there's just this smile on my face. I had this nice warm smile. I, at one point I was playing piano with the music, you know. I felt like I was directing this movie. And what it did was for me, 
it sort of let me step out of my mind that doesn't stop running. And it took me away from all these things that weren't that important and sort of brought me into this new world where it opened up. It opened me up a little bit. And so can I say, oh, my God, it's worked wonders. I, I think gradually, like you say, like the, you call microdosing, I felt like it it is helping me a little bit. It's sort of um, as, as long as it's a controlled environment and a professional, you know, for me, it did. For some people, I think it does. For those people, Bob and the girl out there, they're happy as clams. And, you know, whatever it takes. I mean, I look at these. I think I, as I'm getting it more, as I'm getting older, I just feel like I, I'm always in control of everything. I'm always, I got to be in control of this. I got to be in charge of this. I got to, you know, tell Rob, Rob, do we do this? And I need to just fucking chill the fuck out and get out of my mind. And so for me, I think it was imperative that I try something like this, as long as it wasn't dangerous or it wasn't going to kill me, which, so anyway, have I educated you at all on ketamine? Yes, thank you. Ketamine is also, it's a dissociative. So you can see yourself from a distance if you do enough of it, which is kind of a crazy thing to think about. Like you could watch yourself. I remember being at a party about 20 years ago where everyone was, it was in a motel and everyone was doing ketamine and there was these two women that were trying to, it was this like shitty motel room and there was a, uh, a, a really cheesy, cheap print of a, of a bad painting on the wall and they were trying to crawl into the painting. <laughs> <laughs> All right. By the way, this ketamine that you're talking about, the party drug, the special K or whatever, is wildly different than what I'm doing. They say that even on the thing, they say this is controlled microdust. It's it, like I read the article about it, and it's like people think, oh, he's doing ketamine. He's doing this massive drug. And it's not. It gets a bad rap, you know, but – uh, but that's pretty. That's a that's a wild story. They're just trying to climb. Into it. I don't ever want to get that far. You should just. Up. You should ask them to up the dose just to the point where you try to crawl into a two dimensional painting, just just to see what it's like. I mean, I remember the nurse coming in there, and I lifted up my mask, and I went, "Hey there," and she's like, "Hi, Michael," and I'm like, "What are you doing?" And she's like, "Removing this chair," and I'm like, "Why are you doing that?" She's like, "Oh, we need to get ready for another patient." And by this, I'm balls deep in this trip. And I'm like, am I okay? And she goes, you're great. And I go, how's my uh, resting heart rate? She's like, it's perfect. <laughs> it's perfect. And I go, thank you. And she goes, have a nice day, Michael. And she walked out. She looked like a cartoon character. And then I closed my mask. And then I went on board, got back on board and <laughs> tripped out. Dude, it was it was How's insane. my resting heart rate? <laughs> I swear to God, I asked her, how's my resting heart rate? And like, am I doing okay? You're doing great. <laughs> anyway, look, for this last few minutes, I want to talk to you just about uh, Supernatural. We've talked about, I, I thank you for being so open. And so, look, I, I feel like I know you more now. And I feel like people who like when they go to conventions and stuff, they, I don't know if they, I don't know if you've ever gotten this deep. You ever talk about this stuff? Probably not all at once, but. Uh, <laughs> well, I appreciate you for being so open and I hope I didn't uh, upset you by saying anything. Right. I, no, no, no. It's all right. I'll just book a double appointment with my therapist. <laughs> Do you go to therapy? Uh, not really. Uh, uh, very occasionally. Um, I, I should. Are you only more. saying that because you're running I'm, for office? No, I'm, 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 I'm literally. I'm. I'm one of those people that always is. I'm always thinking to myself, I should do more therapy. I have a therapist who I've spoken with three times, so it's a start. That's a start. Um, supernatural. Were, uh, so you've been on it all ten years. 
Supernatural is going into its 15th season, not to correct you. Oh, sorry, 15. That's what I meant. Rob, what the fuck? I've been on, this will be my 12th season. When I hear your name, people say, I think it was Mark Shepard who said, they throw so much at him. Like, you're the guy who has all the dialogue. Like, a lot of the big dialogue. Is that true? No, no. It's actually, on the contrary, they often use me as a glorified extra because they don't like how I deliver my lines is my assumption. Um, no, you know, Mark, it's funny. Mark, actually, um, when he was on the show, he had he had these really beastly, big, meaty chunks of dialogue. And he has this lovely kind of lyrical, maybe it's just because he's from the UK. and uh, <laughs> Everything and they, sounds good. They have, they have an unfair advantage, but you know, there's maybe, maybe there's like Shakespeare in his blood or something like that. But he, he had this knack for even, even though often he couldn't really remember his lines when he finally got them, they just sounded, it just was lyrical. Um, so yeah, Mark would often have these long soliloquies when he was on the show, which was lovely. Um, but I've been, you know, they keep me busy. Um, but I'm often, I'm often, uh, sort of monosyllabic <laughs> do, you, do you sort of do you ever get to a point where you're like you had to because we all have but where you know you're working you're now in your sixth season at this point you know i know you've done 12 seasons but have you ever thought you know at the sixth season you're like oh my god i'm saying the same stuff or i'm doing this or there's times where like i just want to go do something else or were you always like it's easy to say no i'm happy i want everybody to know how happy i was and perfect I mean, life's great because you're human, so you're going to go through stages of like, okay, this is I'm, I've kind of had enough. Have you? Did you ever get through that? There's definitely moments when I wake up. I mean, you know, you know, from Smallville, the schedule can be bruising. The, the idea of waking up and you know, I I live quite a long ways away from set, and you know, I often have to get up at four thirty in the morning to get to work, and and then you know, by the end of the week, we're shooting until four o'clock in the morning, and it's kind of exhausting, and sometimes I don't want to go to work, but one of the things that makes our show great is that it feels like it's never repetition. We're always doing something different. The characters, I mean, my character, I played you. I played the human that my angel possessed. I played my angel when he first came on the show and was just a servant of God. I played Lucifer. I became insane. I became a human angel. I had amnesia. I was this weird being with a strange accent in who was keeper of the empty. I uh, was a weird Nazi iteration of myself in, 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 with a quasi-German accent in a parallel universe. Like we are constantly shifting the terrain under our feet and okay. making it yeah. kind of interesting. So, um, yeah, I mean, there, there, I've worn pretty much the same costume for 12 years. And there is some stuff that starts to feel a little bit redundant. But for the most part, this is not, you know, a procedural drama where we're interviewing perp number two in the witness room every week. It's we're kind of doing weird new stuff all the time. We're breaking the fourth wall. I played Misha, the actor who played Castiel on the TV show <laughs> Supernatural. Supernatural. Like we do enough weird shit that it kind of does make it feel fresh. That was a factor that went into the decision to end the show was, you know, conversations about like, well, we could we could stretch this storyline for another three years, 
or we could go out with a bang and have one great final season. And everyone was like, you know what? That sounds like the right choice. Let's, let's not go out with a whimper. Let's go out with a bang. So I really am genuinely not bored. Sometimes I don't want to go to work, but it doesn't feel like a drag. Right. So you go there, your attitude pretty much is like, hey, I'm getting paid to act probably a lot and it's fun and I love the people I work with and it's a success and it makes an impact on so many lives that, you know, it makes you get up and enjoy life a little more. I mean, miraculously, all of those things that you just said are true. We all we really do love working together. Our crew is incredible. We have a great working dynamic. We do get to do very strange stuff on the show, which is exhilarating and satisfying we do get paid more than we should be paid, and yet it's it's remarkable, but you can still go into that set of circumstances and be like, ugh, I don't want to go to work. Um, I think we humans have this incredible capacity to be dissatisfied with wherever we are. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. You know, Mark m- might have said, Shepard might have said this instead. Maybe I got it wrong because it was a while ago, that he said that maybe they fuck with you the most. Oh, that, that's right. Okay, that's right. Yes. They fuck with you the most. So, that's uh, what it is. For the last three years, we've had a, a new actor on the show, Alex Calvert, um, who looks like me 20 years ago. He looks like my son. And it's been a real breath of fresh air because Jared and Jensen have taken him as they're, they've um, started hazing him instead of hazing me. Um, so I have gotten a little bit of a reprieve from the abuse um, but it was interesting for me to notice, this is again, another thing to sort of notice about yourself. For a long time, Jared and Jensen would make it really difficult. When when it was all three of us on set, they would invariably fuck with me. Right below frame, where the camera couldn't see, where the director couldn't see what was going on. You know, Jared, Jared would be, you know, have, he would have a, a broomstick in my crotch while, I, while it was my coverage. And I would just be like biting my cheeks and trying to muscle through it and, you know, cursing them. And Alex came on the show and they started doing the same thing to him. And I just jumped on the bandwagon. I was like, thank God it's not me. And it was a good thing to learn about myself, that it wasn't that I had any kind of moral compass or anything. I just didn't want to be the one getting abused. And I was happy to throw someone else under the bus. So now I just join in with making it difficult for him to work. And uh, it feels like everything is right in the universe. Does you know being around a family like that? I know it's you. You hang out with these people more than you do with your own family, probably, or most of your family, except your immediate family. There's so much laughter. There's so much love. But do you ever see uh, other emotions? Do you ever see any anger? Do you ever see any real sadness? Do you ever have to take care of each other in in that regard? Because it can't always be pretty. Oh yeah, I mean, particularly you know me, Jared Jensen. I, you know what? That's not really even true. I, I think even the the. Um, recurring characters, you know, we've, we've all been working together for so long and we've all gone through difficult things. You know, there've been divorces and bouts of depression and difficult chapters in everyone's life. And we have definitely been there for one another in those times. And, you know, I, I mean, we've had times when we've just sort of had our arms around one another in our trailers and, you know, patted one another's backs and said, Hey, you know, we're here for you. We love you. And it is really nice to feel like we have that, that support network at work. I mean, we're friends, we're coworkers. Uh, we drive each other crazy. It really does in a lot of ways look and feel like a family. 
It's got all of the emotional texture of a family. What uh, what do you think the emotions are going to be the last day on set for you? You probably don't even know. No, I think we all have probably a taste of it. I mean, just making the announcement that we were ending the show was a little bit of a, a glimpse into what that's going to feel like. It's certainly going to – everyone's going to be crying. It's going to be a shit show in that department. Uh, I don't know how they're going to actually shoot anything on that final day. <laughs> But but I think that there is a a bittersweetness to it because it is, you know, it's been a really long chapter in all of our lives. And it'll be an exciting moment to look forward to a new future where we don't know what's coming down the pipe. Um, You know, new adventures will come our way. And I think um, I think we're we're all looking forward to that in some respects and we're all really going to miss the show and the show's not going to ever go away for us it's always going to be a part of our lives you were on smallville the whole seven years run, right? seven years i left after seven and came back for the season finale series finale series finale that i mean you so you know kind of that feeling yeah we did 22 of, years so i did about 160 episodes that's and, a huge you know for me it was time to go yeah it was huge it was oh my god it was and it was and it was and i cried i didn't think i would and I yeah. cried when I left. I hugged my makeup artist, Natalie, and I said, all right, well, good scene. And then, oh, Jesus. And it was just uh, just floodgates. Um, because it is. She's like, she was a mother to me. She listened yeah. to me. <laughs> Unlike my real mother. She did, though. She really listened to me, and I knew her family. And I would remember, I remember stories that I tell about, to tell this day, about her kid. And I remember some stupid story. She comes home at 2 in the morning. We're filming so late and she comes home and her, she's getting to bed and her husband goes hey Natalie I, little Blake wants to talk to you he wants you to wake him up he has to tell you something very important you just, he's like, she's like it's like 2.30 in the morning honey I, I just I, I'm so touched she's like, he's saying no I promised him that you'd wake him up she's like okay and so she goes into little Blake's room and she shakes him and she goes Blake huh Blake Blake yeah dad said you wanted me to wake you up you had something really important to tell me I threw up today <laughs> just went back to bed but i just remember i was so captivated by her stories and her family and i was interested and you know it was just it was it was so sad that when i went i was like these people i'll rarely see again if at all if ever i can remember their names and it's like especially you know 12 years for you it's almost twice that much in these guys so at the end i imagine that they're going to need kleenex is going to probably sponsor the final episode yeah. for supernatural yeah, we could get a good sponsorship there. Well, dude, I, I appreciate you. Um, I want to talk to your uh, your other buddies today. And uh, all right, th- we this is the most we've talked. Yeah, um, it's been mostly pleasant. Yeah, it has. It really has. I really enjoyed you, Misha Collins. Thank you for allowing me to be inside of you. I enjoyed you being in me, and I uh, I hope we get to spend more time in each other. I, I cannot wait, my friend. I cannot wait. Good <laughs> luck with the final season, man. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Don't be nice to Jared and Jensen, please. Never. Oh my God. Hey guys, thanks for listening to Misha Collins. Right now, as I promised, Left on Laurel, this is track two. Please check out the album, buy it, spread the word. Go to Left on Laurel on all uh, social media platforms and uh, uh, merchandise is on inside of you. You can get a lot of great stuff. This one is called The Ten. All the on my shelf. I still can't take a look in
welcome to Talkville. The Ultimate Smallville Rewatch Podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although, I didn't really work with her a lot. But, Tom did. And they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.